Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. And it doesn't matter what level. If you paint, you are going to have failures. It just happens. And in fact, they're, I think, not only part of the process, they're more important than the successes, really, because they're your best teachers. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist John McDonald. In the conversation, you'll discover what to do if you think you have a failed painting, how to assess your scene before you start, and how to take photos so that you actually have the information you need later when you start the painting, plus a whole lot more. McDonald talks a fair amount about value. And if you're new to value or just need a quick refresher, I've got you covered. It's a PDF download called How to Understand Value and Why It Matters. And you can get it by heading to the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 92 and add in your email. That link is also where you'll find the show notes and a link to the Podcast Art Club's extended cut bonus with McDonald. Again, learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 92. I start the interview by asking McDonald how he got started in art. Well, for almost as long as I can remember, you know, I've been very interested in, in the visual world. I was terrible in math at high school. The sciences, I loved the sciences, but I was just a blockhead when it came to mathematics. So fortunately, I at that point started drawing and doing a little bit of painting. And it just, I caught the bug and I've never kind of stopped. All kids draw, we all do. I didn't have any special talent. I just never stopped. So if you do something all the time, hopefully you'll get pretty good at it. Was there a point where you decided, I'm going to get really good at this? I wouldn't say I thought I was going to get really good. I was hoping I would get really good. I was an art major at university. And when I graduated, I knew I still didn't have the skills to, especially to make any kind of, of a income, a livable income from it. I think at that point, I was aware that I was really going to have to just work at this. But fortunately, it was so much fun and continues to be so much fun. It never never really feels like work. I mean, I certainly have my frustrating moments when a painting isn't going well. But generally, you know, I love it as much as I did 40, 50 years ago. Coming out of art school, how did you continue to develop your skills? So technically, I was a painting major, but I graduated undergrad in 79. And the almost the entire painting faculty were abstract expressionists. So you know, I wanted to learn how to paint to render light and form and space because even at that point, I was in love with the landscape and in love with largely representational work. And they frankly really weren't able to help me. So I switched over to be an illustration major. I got out of college. I think I worked for about six months and then went to France for six months to study printmaking and then came back and then went to grad school in painting and drawing. So there were long periods where I didn't do much painting. I was doing a lot of drawing, which helped quite a bit. And I think it always does even though I'm a landscape painter. And if I mess up a tree, who's to know? Unlike a figure painter, if you have you know, a nose that's one eighth of an inch off or an eye slightly higher, slightly larger than the other, everyone can see it. But the drawing skills were important. So I didn't do a lot of painting to answer your question when I got out of 
school, but always kind of kept plugging away at it. And then in 82, my wife and I got married. I met her at, at grad school and she at the time was working. So I was able to just strictly paint, which was wonderful. I think that's when I started to get much more serious about painting. You work in oils. What do you love about oil? What do oils allow you to do that maybe another medium wouldn't? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I painted the first 10 years in acrylics. I take large paintings outdoors, usually in the woods, and just paint these large paintings of the light coming through and hitting tree trunks. At that time, acrylic, I guess, suited me because I was still trying to learn color mixing and getting the right hue and sit chroma and value of a color. So I wasn't doing a lot of blending on canvas, which is good because I couldn't <laughs> with acrylics, especially when I was out in the woods and there was a dry summer day. It just dries so quickly. And it wasn't until maybe five or six years into my painting when a friend had suggested that I try oils. And I immediately loved the ability to spend extended periods of time blending. I have seen a lot of acrylic paintings that are indistinguishable from an oil painting in terms of color richness, whatever. I could not achieve that in acrylics, whereas I could in oils. So I really enjoyed glazing. And I tend to work in very thin layers of paint. And I always have, but I'm really realizing it's just the way I prefer to work. And I do enjoy the ability now to blend an edge with my finger or a tool or a brush or however it works. I just love the feel of them. Do you think there was a benefit for you to start in acrylics because of the fast drying time, because of the focus on color mixing? Well, that's a good question. There maybe there was. I might have struggled more with oils because of the fact that acrylic dries so quickly when you're working one layer on another, the underlayer is almost always going to be dry. So I wasn't getting inappropriate mixtures, mud, when I'm painting. And yeah, looking back, it probably allowed me to just concentrate on color mixing and not have, having to worry so much about picking up a wet color underneath and then creating a problem. When you made that transition from acrylic to oil, how long did it take you to feel comfortable, like truly comfortable in a new medium? I don't teach any workshops anymore, but it was almost 20 years of teaching workshops. And I'm convinced more than ever that the real problems artists of every level, myself included, face aren't generally technical issues. True, I can tell I'm meant to be an oil painter. And were I to go back to acrylics, it would probably drive me crazy. But generally, it's not the technical issues that are the problem. It's just the basics, composition, understanding value, color contrast, how to manipulate edges, that sort of thing. There is always a learning curve. But I think if you're painting, if you can put in an hour or two of painting five, six days a week, you can not master a new media immediately, but six months would probably be certainly enough time to adequately be able to achieve the results that you want in that media. Although, you know, again, there is that thing about sometimes there are some media that just don't fit people and ways of working that just doesn't work for them. And I think that there's always a painful period filled with doubt and frustration over the first month or two or three when you're trying something new and it's frustrating, you're just trying to learn how to use it. And it's too early to decide, is this what I'm meant to be doing or not? Because the frustration is the same. You're going to be frustrated because you don't know how to use the media technically to get the effects you want. But I think that when you do, when you reach a level where you can become proficient enough in a media that you can get the effects you want, you can get the results you want on the canvas, if it's meant for you, there's just such a joy in painting. And if it's not meant for you, you're still going to be frustrated. You're going to be really fighting it. And then it's time to move on and, and try something else. You know, I worked for, in acrylics for six, maybe it was 10 years. But at one point, I think I was trying to get certain effects in acrylics I just couldn't get. 
and it was easier for me just to switch to oils where I knew I could get those effects. One of the things I find really interesting about painting as a medium, but really any skill that you're developing, is that frustration is part of it. But when we think of like, I'm going to learn to paint, we don't think like, well, I'm going to spend a bunch of time frustrated. We just don't have that in our mental model of what learning to paint is. And so it's so fascinating to hear you say like, no, no, no that's part of it. You know, it is. And it's, that does depend too on your expectations. I mean, a lot of the people I have students in the workshops were older than I am. I'm 66 and they were retired, you know, after having a career in business or raising families and, and they wanted to get back to art. And I think that all 99% of them would be honest and say, look, my goal is not to be the next John Singer Sergeant because they know they're not going to live long enough to become John. And I know I wouldn't either. I mean, where I am right now at my ability and I look at his work, I need another lifetime to even get close to him. So I'm going to run out of time too. But I think recognizing that and not getting uptight about that, it allows you to more easily keep tapped into that, the joy of it. Sometimes I, I try to distinguish between happiness and joy. And for me, joy is a state of being. And that's why I've often used that word when I talk about this, that how wonderful it is to paint or be creative in any media. That underlying joy that you want to nurture and that supports you, it supports you through the ups and downs. Because if you paint, and it doesn't matter what level, if you paint, you are going to have failures. It just happens. And in fact, they're not only part of the process, they're more important than the successes, really, because they're your best teachers. If I totally mess up a painting, I have in the most concrete form imaginable something telling me exactly what I need to work on. The problem is when we have a frustrating day, we want to tear it up and throw it out and not look at it because it makes us uncomfortable. It's a reminder that, you know, we fail now and then. But if you can approach it like a scientist, you know, if a scientist runs an experiment, she doesn't say, oh, the experiment failed. Therefore, I'm a bad scientist. No, she just uses that as data. Okay, that's important data. Let's move on to the next experiment. Let me try this. But artists, we have a failed painting and suddenly we're lousy artists. It's like, no, 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 this is just part of learning. And look at your painting and then find the tangible reasons this painting failed. Look at it and say, okay, do the trees work? If they do, great. Does the composition work? Are my values off? I produced a newsletter and one of the newsletters several years ago was a whole list of questions that you could use to analyze your painting. And I go through the same process beginning with the most important thing of all, the composition. And, and if the composition works good, I go on to the values. The values work, I go on to the drawing of the forms, the placement, you know, all of that stuff. So I'm looking for information. Why did this painting fail? Because if I don't find out, I'm just going to do it again. We mentioned that you use oils. For your colors, generally how many colors do you use in general? And do you generally use that same amount in each painting? Like general palette versus the palette you use on a given painting. Right. There's a saying that the beginning painters use a limited palette. Intermediate painters have a huge palette and experienced painters go back to a limited palette. And that's funny because that really was kind of my process. I used to have, I think, 16 tubes, you know, piles of paint on my palette. And now the last couple of months working with just five, because I changed a couple of months ago, I'm still in the old mindset, but I'm down to just five, a white, a yellow, a red, a bluish green and purple. When I first started working in a limited palette, I was astonished at the range of colors I can get. So if I'm looking at a, a sunset, trying to do a sunset where everything is golden light, it's going to be a very warm key. 
all the colors will have a certain range, but they're all going to be warm, which would be a very different palette than a painting of a moonlit snow scene where everything is so cool and blue and icy. But I'm finding that because color is relative, as you start to master color mixing, it's crazy how you can make one color look so different by what you put around it. So I'm very comfortable with these just five pigments. The range of color I'm able to get is still surprises me. It's just wonderful. You use a special white. Could you talk to us about that? Sure. So I use a white that's half zinc and half titanium. The difference between the two is, is a titanium is more opaque and it will dry more quickly and it has a very durable paint film. It's great for archival purposes. It makes for a very stable painting. Zinc you never want to use alone. Zinc is translucent, which means it can mix a color. Say if you want a very, very light pink, that pink will not be as chalky as it would if you use titanium because it's more translucent. However, pure zinc takes forever to dry. And when it dries, it is extremely brittle. It will crack. It will flake off your painting. You never want to use zinc by itself. So I have been using a Winsor Newton soft mixing white, as they call it. It's 50% titanium, 50% zinc. And because I paint thinly, the zinc in it is not a problem. I think if you were to paint very thickly, say a palette knife, and throw the paint on the canvas, you have to be very careful about having zinc in any of the mixtures because it can create some problems. It can also delaminate. It just doesn't adhere to the bottom layer. So it might just flake off. Could you name off the top of your head what the five pigments are? So that's my white. I'm very happy with it. The yellow that I use, I used to use cad yellow light pale, which I just loved. But I've gotten away entirely from any toxic materials in my studio now. I don't use solvents. I don't use any toxic pigments. So I mix this yellow myself and I mix it with Winsor Newton, what they call uh, Winsor yellow. It's a Hansa yellow. And then I throw in a little bit of Winsor Newton Indian yellow, which every brand is different, but it's a more warm orangish yellow. And right now I'm using transparent red oxide as the warm hue and then dioxazine purple. But I said five pigments. I don't think I named them all because I am using now Viridian green rather than Prussian. But I'm finding myself mixing Prussian into the Viridian to shove it a little more toward the blue. Both pigments are transparent. In fact, all my pigments are transparent, which I love because it allows me for, with glazing and layering to get a little bit of translucency in the paint layers. So you have light going into the layers and bouncing back and the color appears to be much richer. If you tend to paint more flat and thickly, you, you know, maybe transparent layers aren't the best. You could use more opaque pigments. Cadmiums are very opaque, and that's why I like this yellow that I mix. It's not opaque. It's more transparent, and it does dry more quickly than cads, which I like. So right now I'm using white viridian green, transparent red oxide, and purple, and the yellow that I mix. I'll just throw this out, though, for anyone out there who's tempted to use a limited palette. And I really encourage you to try it sometime because it will force you to mix every color. You're going to get a lot better very quickly at identifying a color and knowing how to mix it. And it just makes your eyes more sensitive to color mixtures. But when you choose a limited palette, traditionally, they would recommend slightly more than five pigments that I'm using. They would recommend a warm yellow and a cool yellow. So you might have lime yellow and then cad yellow medium, a warm red and a cool red, cad red, alizarin crimson, a warm blue and a cool blue, and then white. And, you know, if you wanted black or Payne's gray, you could certainly use that. But the pigments that I'm using right now, 
well, the Prussian blue is, is a blue that's in the middle. So it's neither warm nor cool. And I could make it warm or cool either way. The yellow I mix is neither warm nor cool. It's kind of in the middle. Purple is purple. You know, it's, it's, it can be warm or cool. I was for years using the palette I was using up till just three months ago. For about 15 years, I was using white, Prussian blue, that same yellow mixture, permanent alizarin crimson, raw umber, and Payne's gray, and dioxazine purple. So I've really kind of dropped two or three pigments out and not finding that it was a very shallow learning curve and very quickly was able to deal with slightly different mixtures. So again, my limited palette right now is white, the yellow that I mix, viridian green, transparent red oxide and dioxazine purple, which is a crazy sounding palette, but I really do enjoy it. What I'm finding interesting working in the Viridian is it's, it's already greenish. It's a cool, very cool green. I love the challenge of having to mix all my greens. I'm a landscape painter and my previous limited palette, I had Prussian blue and the yellow and that was you know pretty much it, but I couldn't believe the range of greens I could get when I started to work in some dioxazine or some raw umber, Payne's gray. Payne's gray and yellow makes a gorgeous green, a little more muted. But so in this case, I think that's why I'm kind of tempted more and more to maybe start mixing for some Prussian into the Viridian, make it a little bluer. So we're going to move into process. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? My process in a nutshell is very simple. Assuming I find a scene that inspires me, and I do paint both plein air and from photographs, I don't have a trouble Painting from photographs, I do think if you're a landscape painter, at some point in your career, you have to get out and paint plein air as much as possible for the very simple fact that the camera cannot capture the subtlety of the color. Captures plenty of detail and a lot of other stuff, but but back to my process. So assuming I find a scene I find inspiring, unless it's a very small painting and I have absolutely no time to do it, generally I will do a tonal thumbnail sketch, which is very small, maybe one inch by two inches, two by three at the most. Monochromatic. I use grayscale markers. So a set of 10 markers that allow me to just knock in a value very quickly. And sometimes I'll use a pen to outline it. So I'll do a tonal sketch to play around with different compositional possibilities, test the composition, and then I assign the shapes in that composition values. They can be very quick and very loose, but just by looking at it, I can tell, yes, this painting will work or no, it won't. And I better try a different composition or try a different, maybe tweak the values. Typically then, if I have a sketch that I really like, I will often then go, if it's a smaller painting, go right to blocking it in. When I create the block in, I'm really not that concerned about color at that point because I can always change it later. It's much harder to change major areas of value if you decide that the painting's not working because of value, nail those value relationships in the block in. It will make the job so much easier. So I do the block in and then just slowly kind of allow the painting to develop kind of on its own. I don't have a process where I always start with the sky or always start with the darks. Usually that great artist who's no longer with us, sadly, Richard Schmidt once said something that really jumped out. He said, if you're struggling to identify a color or a value relationship, start wherever you want to in your scene that you find it most easy to identify those value relationships or color. So you may want to start with the sky, but if the sky is a pearly gray and you're thinking, how in the world am I going to mix this color? Well, start with a fire engine red, the barn that's in the landscape, and then just to get it down. And then that can be the point that you refer to as you mix other colors. You can keep going back and forth and relate that to the other colors. So block in, I let the painting develop. Now that tends to be more small paintings and it's plein air. 
How is your process different or similar for your studio work? A studio, if I'm doing a large painting, you know, 24 by 36 for me is pretty large. I will often do exactly the same thing, go through a series of tonal studies, find one I like, and then I will create an underpainting on the canvas. I sometimes will do a small painting as a study, but often I'll go directly to the underpainting. So an underpainting, it's like a tonal study. It's monochromatic. I use burnt sienna and white is one way of doing it. Sometimes I'll just use burnt sienna and wipe the paint off to reveal the white of the canvas underneath to change my values. But I'm working with one pigment, burnt sienna, and all I want to do is get those major shapes on the canvas and make sure those values work. I might put in a couple little details, maybe the most important details that are in the focal point, but generally you don't need to finish the underpainting, but you just want to establish the composition and the values. I have found over the years that if I can nail that underpainting, it's almost impossible, almost, I've done it, but it's almost impossible to screw it up when you add color. If you simply match the values of what's underneath the underpainting and put the color on top, and often you can let the underpainting show through in different areas, to help tie the painting together in color. It's really a beautiful way to work. It's very traditional. They were doing that a century and a half ago. So small paintings just goes from seeing a scene, tonal study, right to the block in, and then letting the painting finish. But bigger paintings, I'll first do the underpainting, let that dry, and then work color on top of it in thin layers. Like when we think about painting, we think about color and details. Like that's often as beginners what gets us excited about it. But so much, like if you divided your process up, the bulk of it is not those things. And so could you just talk about the hierarchy of what you think is important to figure out? That is so important. And again, I got this from Richard Schmidt, and I, there, or he might vary it a little bit. But for me, a painting only consists of five things. It's the composition, which includes drawing, but also designing those shapes. You know, you have to have an effective composition. The value relationships, and especially the value relationships between the major shapes of the painting. If I have a light sky and a dark band of trees and a mid-value meadow, those are three value shapes that comprise the composition. I have got to make sure those value relationships work. So first composition, second value structure, then color contrast, which is usually playing warm and cool colors against each other. Then there are edges. Edge contrast is when I have a tree meet the sky. Is that edge really hard, razor sharp, or is it blurred, or does it vary? So you need to vary the edges. And then lastly is our details. And that is exactly the hierarchy. Composition by far and away is the most important component in a painting. If you don't have a good composition, the painting will fail, no matter what you do. And in fact, when I go through my work sometimes and decide whether or not I want to destroy a painting or try and save it, the first thing I ask myself is, does the composition work? And if it doesn't, I will scrape it. I'll destroy it. I'll just paint over it. You have to start over if the composition doesn't work. So composition, number one, value relationships, number two, color contrast, number three, edges, number four, and details. And that is the way I now structure my painting process. And my failure rate has gone down significantly from what it was 20 years ago. Because if the composition is the most important part of the painting and the details are the least important, for goodness sakes, don't start with the details. You're putting the cart before the horse, or I like to think of it as a pyramid. And the base of that pyramid is the composition. Well, if you start your painting with the details and the color, you're tipping the pyramid on its point. And good luck trying to make that work. You know, it's just not going to work. 
So when I paint, that's why, say, for instance, if I'm doing a large painting, I don't want to spend 40 hours on a painting only to have it fail. You know, a large painting is an investment in time, which is why I will do the underpainting. If I can get the composition and the value relationships of the major shapes of that composition working as an underpainting, that's 80% of my job. And then it's just fun. Then you're playing with color. And color is just wonderful to play with, but you have to be putting it on a painting that works because you can't save a painting with color. It's just not going to happen. The values have to be right. And certainly the composition has to be right. So my painting process kind of evolves from over the years, really understanding what makes for good painting and what makes paintings fail. When you're looking at a scene, are you thinking about composition? And what are you sort of looking for in that scene in terms of that? That's the second thing I look at. The first thing I'll look at is what is in the scene that really makes me want to paint it. So for instance, if there's a beautiful effect of light breaking across a scene, that may be what initially attracts me to it. I think, oh my gosh, what I love to capture, there's a mood, the light is just, you know, rips your heart out. It's like, okay, I want to dig into this and see if I can capture any part of this. The second thing though would be, is there a composition here? Because there are a lot of beautiful scenes, a lot of beautiful scenes that will make lousy paintings. And I find that I always will have to invent, manipulate, omit, delete, add things to the painting to make it work that are not out in the scene. But if I have to invent 40 or 50% of it, I find a different scene because I want to be able to just find something that's going to support the painting in those initial stages. So doing the tonal studies for years has really helped because I'm able to very quickly now look at a scene, often I'll squinting, blurs details, emphasizes values over color. It's a terrific way to look at a scene or a photograph. It can be a photograph or on location and see those major shapes. So what am I looking for? Well, you know, there there are times I've gone out in the countryside wanting to paint and there's a flat band of trees in the horizon toward the horizon. And there's a field that's perfectly just one line all that goes from left to right across the canvas. And the trees are even, and I'm looking at three flat horizontal shapes. Well, that's not going to be terribly exciting. So I'll get back in the car and move on. I'm looking for a variety of shapes, maybe something that has maybe a quirky edge. Composition, I have found, is really difficult to teach because so much of it depends on feeling. It just feels right. But there are certainly rules in composition. And a lot of them is, yes, you want to be very sensitive to how the shapes appear in that landscape. And you want to be able to really reduce it to maybe two to five major shapes. Say I'm working on a dusk painting and all the interest is in the sky, the colors, a lot of color, and the whole ground below the sky is fairly dark. So there might be a distant hill and a meadow with trees and all sorts of things going on, but the values are so close. I can squint and break that into just two values, a light sky and a much darker ground. And if the interest is in the sky, well, then that's the information I need. Good. I'll simplify the ground and put all the interest in the sky. But those are the things I immediately will go to if I'm looking at a scene and feeling inspired to paint it. But I'm gonna, I start thinking, okay, what are the shapes here? How can I arrange them on the canvas to make it for an effective composition that will lead the eye kind of where I want it to go? So if I have a sunset and the most important part of the painting is where the sun is just dipping below the hill and there's the lighting effects on some clouds above it or whatever, I want to make sure that I design the shapes of the composition to lead the eye eventually to that place. You don't have to be heavy handed. You know, I don't need a diagonal road pointing right to it and every line in the hills pointing right to it. Then it becomes like a black hole. It will just suck your eye there and it will not let it go. 
you want to be able to kind of take a journey through the painting, but you also want to have a destination in the painting. So if that's my focal point, that's my point of interest, and you want to design the composition around that. So there's another irony with this is that when you were attracted to this reality, the scene, and our brain is telling us these are trees and hills and they exist in space, you're going to need to have a skill that allows you to look at a scene as flat two-dimensional shapes. Shut the brain off, or at least that part of the brain that slaps labels on everything. This is a tree. This is a mountain. No, it's just a shape with a certain value and a certain edge and a certain color. And if at the very beginning, I can just look at this as a series of interlocking flat shapes, it's much more easy to decide if it's going to work as a painting or not. What kind of size contrast do you want for those shapes, those two to five shapes? So they vary. Say I find a landscape that I'm interested in painting, but it's just a band of trees, some trees in the middle ground, a meadow and a sky across. And if I divide the canvas in equal thirds, I am going to kill that painting right off the start because your eye will be attracted to each one of those shapes equally. So even if that's the way nature presented it, I've got three equal shapes out there. I'm going to have to change that. So maybe I'll move the horizon line lower on the canvas, enlarge the band of trees, maybe make it smaller. I want to be able to let the eye work its way up that canvas reading each shape, and they're just a different size on the canvas, different outlines. So there's both variety in size and a variety in, in outline that's important. So that's probably, you know, one of the easiest ways. And be careful of the edges. If I see something where there's a very small shape that grabs my eye, but it's going to be on the right edge of the canvas, well, that will grab my eye and probably lead it off the canvas. So maybe if it's a light on a little slash of field or the roof of a building, I'll move it into the canvas more. And if it's that interesting, maybe I'll even make it the focal point. It's not at all unusual for me to look at a scene and say, okay, this is working, but I need a vertical shape to break a couple of these horizontals. Oh, there's a beautiful tree I can see to my left. Good. I'm going to take that and move it right over to where it's needed in the painting. You were talking about the sketches, but when you're doing something back into the studio, do you use a camera at all to gather information? Yes. I will certainly go out on photo excursions if I don't have time to paint. And especially, I mean, plein air is great. I know that there are a lot of artists who say you have to paint from life, and I respectfully disagree. You know, Starry Night and Rembrandt, Vance Nightwatch and, and the Sistine Ceiling weren't painted from life. There are plenty of great paintings out there that were not painted from life. So that should be almost moot. The real topic for me is whether you're just copying what you're seeing or you're creating a painting. And you can copy, just copy what you see plein air as easily as from the photo and end up with a weak painting. So you have to be creative and move things around. If there are times, for instance, with plein air, it's hard to do plein air if the sun is setting. You have five minutes. I can't do a painting in five minutes. So I'll work from photographs. And as many photographs as possible, I'll always take at least three exposures, take an exposure for the lightest area. So if there's a bright sky, I'll take one photo setting the exposure for the sky and everything else will be black. But that way I can see maybe subtle shapes of clouds or colors in the sky. Then I'll shoot a photograph of the darkest area exposed, which will blow out the sky. It'll be white, but it gives me information. And then usually a mid-value photograph as well, just so, so I can get a range. I can see what's going on in each one of those in terms of the value scale. And here's a trick that I found to be very helpful is often when I, I'm looking at a scene and either because I don't have time to paint it or the scene is changing so quickly, I can't paint it, I will shoot a movie. When I shoot the movie, I'm not at all interested in the visuals. What I'm interested in is the audio recording. So when I'm shooting the movie, I'm talking into the camera 
describing what I'm seeing. So I'll be saying, okay, the sky is maybe a Prussian at the horizon, but it gets more muted and goes warmer, polyport ultramarine. There are some clouds there that have shades of maybe an umber. And there are two things I found that this was so helpful to make an audio movie of a scene is number one, it serves as good notes when I go back to the studio. Because I know when I take a photograph, that sky is going to look like it's one shade of blue. But then I'll take a movie immediately afterwards and say, okay, so here are the subtle color changes I'm seeing in here. But the other advantage is that by having to describe it, I'm having to look at it closely, analytically. And if I just take a photograph and run back to the studio, I've hardly looked at the scene. But by describing what I'm seeing, you are really spending quality time looking at that scene and already in your head painting it because I'm describing the grass. Okay, the grass is beautiful. It's a yellow green. So there's probably, but it's got a, it's a little muted. So I probably am going to need to put some orange in that. So, you know, in other words, I'm just really memorizing almost the colors I'm seeing in the scene as I describe them. So I found that very helpful. And then when I take a photograph from the studio, I have a 24-inch monitor, fairly good color, but often it's more the value information I'm really interested in because I will often take a scene and completely change it. I sometimes have taken a summer scene and I love the shapes in that scene, but I've turned it into a winter nocturne. You know, it's a moonlit scene with the snow, but the shapes, I just thought, oh, that would make such a great nocturne. So I'm less interested in the color that the camera captures as I am the values and just the shapes, the forms that I'm seeing. The other thing with working from photos, and this was advice that my mentor, Kurt Hansen, gave me once that I thought made a lot of sense. And this holds true whether we're painting from photos or plein air, but he would often convert the photo to black and white and just paint from that as reference when he did. He did most of his work plein air. But he always said, when you start your painting, plein air or from photos, you want to spend a lot of time looking at the photo or the scene because you're analyzing it. But after you block it in and as the painting develops, you should find yourself looking at the scene less and less and looking more at the painting because it's all about the painting. And there will be times where you'll be, if you're just copying what you're seeing, you're going to be putting in things that work in nature that aren't going to work in the painting. So if you spend a lot of time looking at the painting, you're just going to become more sensitive to saying, oh, well, that tree is too tall in the painting. Looks great out there, but it's not going to work in the painting. I've got to shorten it or eliminate it or whatever. So often the last stages of the painting, I don't even have the photo up on the computer. I'm just looking at the painting. What does the painting need? And often it tells me whether I can do it or not. What it's asking for is a different story. You're out at the scene and you've done these tonal studies and you have your pictures, do you walk in and directly start painting or is there a stage in between? If I've taken photos, I will pull those up in Photoshop. And because I was a freelance illustrator, mostly a freelance illustrator, painted when I could, which wasn't often, for about 15 years, I became fairly proficient in a very narrow skill set in Photoshop. It does so much and it's such a huge program, but I finally became pretty good at just taking a photo and adjusting it, copying a sky, pasting it, enlarging a tree, shrinking a tree. And I found that sometimes it would be very helpful to just quickly spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes in Photoshop, cropping it different ways. It, it was very helpful. The tonal study is probably still, for me, the best thing to do because it really reduces it just to the values. Yes, I can convert the photo in Photoshop into black and white, but it's also giving me so much detail and subtle value variations. I just want to see the simple value shapes of the composition. So I'll work with both manipulate the photo a little bit, then the tonal study, and then go right to painting. 
it is helpful if I come back feeling, you know, the fires of inspiration and that landscape is burned into my head. Boy, the sooner I can get painting, the better, because if I wait a day, it'll be gone. Are you thinking about foreground, middle ground and background at all in this? Are you still mostly thinking flat shapes? The block in may be the time where there's a transition from flat shapes into thinking more 3D and spatially. If I get the block in and it's well drawn, hopefully the way that the shapes are designed, they will start to already imply kind of a foreground working into the middle ground. That this shape up top that's light is clearly the sky behind this other shape that's mountains, for instance. So yes, usually at the block-in stage, if I step back and say, okay, the values are working, the composition's working, then it's almost immediately going into more 3D thinking, which would include gradients. You know, the sky isn't a flat value. It's often lighter at the horizon. And if you leave it a flat value and don't change the color, one flat color, one flat value, that's a flat sky. It has no depth, no space. So yes, I'll start to immediately be thinking in terms of, okay, I've got to push that sky back and bring this foreground forward. How much detail, or well, not really detail at this point, but how much variation in values am I going to be working in? First, at the very kind of beginning stages, as almost I'm blocking in, is I'm trying to think where is the area with the greatest contrast? And in terms of the shapes of the composition, if I have three shapes in the composition, I want to have varying amounts of contrast within each one. Contrast of what? Well, you can have value contrast, lights and darks. You can have color contrast, warm and cool. You can have edge contrast, hard edges, soft edges. You can have contrast of details, meaning some areas will have no details. So you're playing areas of simplicity against areas of complexity. The eye is always attracted to contrast, always. And value, value tends to be one of the strongest. So if I identified an area of this painting that's going to be the focal point or major area of interest, I know automatically that's where I have to put in the greatest contrast of values or edges or color, but they do need a hierarchy. So I tend to have the most complexity where the focal point is. And then if I have a sky and a meadow, I want them to have differing levels of complexity. This is where it can get challenging, both plein air and working from a photo, because sometimes if you're you know, autumn meadow, come on with all those wildflowers and it's rusty and it just grabs your eye and it's beautiful. And then you look up at the sky and these gorgeous clouds and all kinds of color. Well, then you're approaching the fatal point of having two focal points or three. If I call equal attention to the different areas in the painting, I've created multiple focal points and it's a failed painting because the eye doesn't know where to go. It's just confusing. So if I have a very active sky that's beautiful and I want to paint it and a very active meadow that's beautiful, I want to paint it. I'm going to do two paintings, two paintings, one in which I'll drop the horizon line and make the sky the point of the painting. And maybe another where I'll raise the horizon line and make the meadow the focal point of the painting and put in a very simple sky. At the very beginning, I start just kind of a making mental notes. OK, sky simple, meadow complex, but this area, this band of the water going through the trees or whatever. That's where I'm going to want to put most of the complexity and most of the contrast. What I love about listening to you is that there are so many decisions you're making. And so sure, of course, there are a lot of decisions in painting. But often as beginners, we think, I'll figure it out. And you have it figured out. Like you articulated. It's not like it's some green. It's a warm green. Or it's, it's not some value. It's this value. Because our brain sometimes says like, ah, 
like you can figure it out later. Like what's the importance of figuring it out now? This is good enough. I'll move on. Yeah. It's like juggling balls. It's we can all juggle two balls. I remember spending as a kid, I don't know, a couple months trying to learn to juggle three. And then I'd see somebody who juggles four and I said, nope, not going to try. <laughs> you know, I don't want to spend two years learning how to do that. If you are going to figure things out as you paint, if you're going to be making decisions of composition and values and edges and colors and let it all happen while you're painting, you're juggling 16 balls. And it won't be any wonder that the majority of your paintings are weak or they fail. And the most important things are the composition, and the value structure. If you figure those out at the beginning, it's so much easier. It's just it's so much easier. There have been too many times where I would say, I just am eager to get to color. And color is so seductive and it is absolutely a joy to work with. But you have to do the work first. You have to do the compositional work and work out your value relationships first. So if I get seduced by the color and I just say, oh, this value, these values will work. I know from experience I'm setting myself up with some serious problems later on. Problems that might destroy the painting that may make it irreparably damaged. Artists have been using this method for a couple of centuries. Step by step, you know, if you look at the sketches Michelangelo did for the Sistine Ceiling, for goodness sakes, he didn't just get up there and say, oh, I think I'll just start with Moses' leg and we'll see how it unfolds. You know, no, it didn't work that way at all. He spent, you know, years just working from models and sketching and sketching and sketching. If you lay that groundwork down first, it just clarifies everything. So when I first started to do it, I thought, well, I'm going to just have to, this is going to slow my painting down. I'm not going to be as productive but my paintings will have a higher success rate in my work. I'll be slower, less productive, but a higher success rate. And actually, I was able to eat my cake and have it too. Yes, I slowed down and was much more analytical, but not only was my success rate higher, I was much more productive, I found, because I'm not wasting hours fixing mistakes. You know, it just works. I end the day with the painting and I said, wow, okay, on to the next one. That was nice. That was fun. A good ride. And it doesn't happen all the time. But even now, when things aren't going well with my paintings, occasionally it's the composition. You think after, you know, 40 some 50 years of doing this, you, I would really learn that composition, you got to nail it. Sometimes I don't. I think it works. And then when I start to get in and develop the painting, I find out it doesn't. Well, I will scrape it immediately. I think for me, one of the biggest differences between a beginning painter and an experienced painter is experienced painters don't waste their time with failed paintings. We can see it's they're failing and we just move on. Fortunately, I think we do fewer failed paintings too, because we put in the time to get the composition right. But you just develop a good eye saying this isn't working and there's no sense by beating my head against this, because why don't I just start over and do a different variation of it? Maybe tweak it. It's just paint. It's just paint. And as Kurt used to say, it's just a painting. Let go and move on. Try another one. For you, details are the final step. What kind of details are you putting in at the very end of a painting? And also, do you let the painting sit at all before you make those choices? I'll answer your last question first. Yes, if, I, if it needs to. Another, I'll throw out another one of Kerr's little sayings that I thought was just wonderful. He said, if you don't know what the painting needs, you need to stop. It's that simple. The expression I've heard in my workshops, other you know, students have talked about poking and hoping which I just love. If you start just poking at the painting, hoping it's going to save it, it's not. You know, there are 3 million colors. The human eye can detect 3 million colors and 240 shades of value. 
So if you multiply that, you know, every 3 million colors has 240 shades. What are the chances you're going to blindly mix the exact right color and value to save your painting? It's zero. You know, go out and buy a lottery ticket instead. So yeah, don't poke and hope. Just stop and look at the painting for months if you need to. And I've done that. I've let a painting sit for a couple months and then just keep looking at it. And eventually something would come to mind. I say, well, let me try it. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it would not. But yes, let a painting dry. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't rush the finish. It's always better to end the day with an unfinished painting that's working than a mediocre finished painting. And a lot of times we get tired toward the end of a session. We're eager. It's working well. So we're really excited and it's it's going great. And that's usually when we're going to screw things up because we just don't stop. We don't take our time. And we have to be self-aware and say, I'm not thinking clearly right now because I'm tired. I'm going to finish this tomorrow. The other question in terms of what kind of details to put in, a word of consolation. It was George Innes, who I consider one of the great landscape painters of all time. He once wrote to a painting friend that he said, I often have to put details in so I know what to paint out. So he didn't get it right the first time either. And part of overworking can be brushwork, overworking your color mixing, but overworking certainly can be details. And typically what happens is you have a painting that's really working well, you're nearing the finish line. And as I said, it's just you're excited because it's working well, it feels good. And you'll put in one detail and you'll step back and you'll say, wow, that looks great. So the voice in your head says, well, if one detail looks great, a hundred more details just like it are going to be super. No, 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 no. You got to ignore that voice totally. That voice is totally wrong because the more detail you put in the painting, the less impact the detail that's in there will have. So I will typically work my details around the focal point first because I just want to make sure I get what I need, knowing that, yes, I'll have to put in some details in other areas or else the painting will look like a vignette with just one little circle finished and the rest of it's unfinished. But boy, I slow way down. I'll go one brush stroke, step back, one brush stroke, step back. And being willing to paint details out and constantly thinking of complexity, simplicity, I will throw this bit of advice out that's helped me immensely and helped me from overworking paintings and helped me judge what details to put in and what not to put in. Is when I'm working on a painting, even if it's a block in or even an underpainting, at the end of the day, I reserve judgment. I don't look at it. I put it in a frame. I have a whole series of frames that I've you know, gotten paint on and they're beaten up so they, they're not going to go to the galleries. And I'll put the painting in a frame and then turn the light on, walk back and then turn around. It's like Vanna White pulling the curtain apart. You know, here's what you won. You know, sometimes it's the dud, sometimes it's not. But what I have really found is that it helps me look at it with fresh eyes. And the fact that there's a frame around it separates it from the background. Often the background of my studio is very busy. I have paintings everywhere. It isolates it visually so I can see it. But I think the biggest thing Interestingly enough, I think it's purely psychological. We are so accustomed to thinking that any painting in a frame is finished. I mean, that's after all what we see in museums and galleries. If it's in a frame, it's got to be finished. Well, half of my brain will think, well, it must be finished. It's in a frame. And sometimes it almost is. Sometimes I think I'm going to need 35 details. I have to work the sky a little more, fix that. I need to do this. And I'll step back and I'll say, I'll be darned. All it needs is one stroke, a couple brush strokes. And you do it and you look at it and you say, it's done. It is done. It has really helped me learn when to stop. 
because it's something that so many artists struggle with, where you get so excited about our paintings. And especially when they're working well, it's so much fun to work on a painting that is working well and appears to unfold before your eyes. Like, I have nothing to do with this. This is just happening. And we're like travelers on vacation on a train. And our destination is we come into the station and we need to get off this train, but we're having so much fun on the ride. We decide, oh, I'm just going to ride a little further. And what we don't know is two miles further ahead, the bridge is out and the train goes right off and you die. So, you know, that's what happens to the painting. We're having so much fun with these paintings and we work, 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 work and add more detail, more detail. And then we step back and just say, I'll be darned. I should have gotten off at the station a half an hour ago. Sometimes you can save them. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't save it. The one advantage of working on a a dried painting is that if you don't like what you did, just wipe it off and you start right back over. Yeah, it's the closest you have to a Command Z, you know, undo on your computer. That's the joy, too, of working in underpaintings. There have been times I've worked eight hours on an underpainting, adding color, and I get back and say, this is awful. It's not working at all. So I just wipe the whole thing off. I'll just start the next day, start all over again. And you have to be able to do that. But put your paintings in frames. And then you can impress people, too, when they come into your studio. They look better in frames. They always do. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Well, at the risk of sounding egotistical, subscribe to my newsletter, because I do go th- into all of this stuff. And I've got to have enough people who've said it's one of the best newsletters out there that are, OK, I'll take. It's an instructional newsletter. And I started writing them for myself because I, as I got into teaching workshops, I knew that if I can't explain it, that means I don't understand it. So a topic like painting trees by doing a newsletter on just painting trees really forces me, well, do I, how much do I know this topic? You know, how good am I at painting trees? So that's been helpful. But if you really, if you want to get good books, videos, look at great art, study art all the time, network with other artists. Most, most artists are so generous. But I think more than anything else, I assume that beginners as a beginner, you want to get into painting because there's something in it that you love, enjoy doing. And it can be just playing with color. It can be the brushstrokes. It can be the smell of the linseed oil. Whatever it is, tap into that and nurture the joy because you're going to have frustrations. There's a good learning curve. I thought when I started painting landscapes out of grad school that I would eventually grow up and be a real artist and paint abstract paintings. And I here I am doing landscapes because the topic keeps getting more and more complex. It's just deeper. Every time I think I've mastered something, I'll look at the Soroy or Zorn or you know any of the great landscape painters working today and say, boy, I don't know anything about this. I've got to try this. So it's just keep the joy, keep focused on the joy of painting because you're going to have ups and downs. And it's a painting. It's just a painting. It's always just a painting. Celebrate your successes and learn from your failures and just keep painting. You can learn more about John McDonald, including his fantastic newsletter and links to his instructional DVD workshops at www.jmcdonald.com and on Instagram and Facebook. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, John. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. And before you go, don't forget to head to the website at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 92 and snag that free PDF, how to understand value and why it matters. That's also where you'll find a link to the podcast art club and the bonus conversation with McDonald, where we dive even deeper into value, edges, and contrast. Speaking of the art club, thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. 
Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!